Widely considered the seminal flashpoint in the creation of the gay liberation movement and the modern fight for LGBTQ rights, this recording is one of a series of podcasts celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots in New York City on the 28th of June, 1969. Perhaps she could tell us what the state of uh, knowledge is, uh, scientifically speaking. Uh, is the homosexual classified as uh, a medical case, as a psychological case? Uh, what? Let's have some general statement of uh, what your interpretation would be. The riots at Stonewall Inn burst from a swelling context of political lobbying for legal reform around homosexuality and the wider civil rights movement in the United States. But it wasn't just kicking off in New York. The problem of homosexuality or the existence of homosexual people is very often much closer to all of us than most of us realize. Underrecorded and underrepresented, this series will focus on the impact of Stonewall in the UK, and particularly from a woman's perspective. Because while same-sex relationships between women were not directly targeted via legal sanctions here in the UK, the community suffered all the same, largely in silence. So let's break it. You know, one of the problems we got in New York now is the police aren't popular. You are listening to From a Whisper to a Roar, a podcast series which aims to pump up the volume on women's voices, lived experiences, and political and personal struggles in the fight for gay rights here in the UK. Funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund and with the support of Opening Doors London, this podcast series is presented by Evelyn Pittman and produced by me, Laurie E. Allen. What was it like in New York at the time of Stonewall? Marguerite McLaughlin is a lifelong LGBTQ activist. She was born in New York and came to study in the UK in the 1970s, where she eventually settled. As a student, she quickly engaged with politics and found herself in the center of the struggle for equality both through LGBTQ activism and the second wave feminist movement. She has worked in a number of LGBTQ organizations and was awarded a British Empire Medal for Health and Community Services to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and African people for her work as CEO of Metro Charity, which provides support and advice around sexual health and HIV. Today we'll talk to Marguerite about her early life in New York and how she heard about the Stonewall Riots, all at a point in her life when she hadn't even realized she was a lesbian yet. Today is the 27th of August 2019, and I'm here with Laurie E. Allen interviewing Marguerite McLaughlin. So, you were actually in New York at the time of the original Stonewall riots. So, tell us what you heard about it all at the time. I had graduated from high school literally the day before. So that Saturday, I was home relaxing, and it was literally too hot to do anything but hang around at home. So I had the radio on in the background when news came through that there was what they were describing as a riot in Greenwich Village and that it was centering on a gay bar. 
and that the police were being attacked by a small crowd. I, at the time, I was 17 years old, and I was already involved with the anti-Vietnam War movement. And so I was very pleased to hear the news, because somehow in New York you know, particularly if you're curious, or knew back in those days, that the Mafia were very much in control of minority bars and that the protection money that they charged gay bars was actually protection against the mafia itself, not actually the police, because the police still would raid and create havoc and people lived in dread of having criminal records because they wouldn't have jobs. They could literally ruin somebody's life. So I was like basically saying, yes, go. I thought it was a great thing. And by the next day, there started being coverage in newspapers. There, was, there were comments on television news. And the riots got worse for several days. And ultimately, people began to form themselves into spokespeople about what was actually happening. From there, and a month, a month later, there was a first march for lesbian and gay rights, which was what the first movement was considering and focusing on. So, how, what was the reaction to that? I think a lot of very ordinary people really didn't have much sense of who gay people were. And if I think about it now, of course, they weren't calling them gay then. They wouldn't have said, oh, gay people are rioting in Greenwich Village. They would have said the homosexual community. In preparing this broadcast, CBS News commissioned a survey by the Opinion Research Corporation into public attitudes toward homosexuality. We discovered that Americans consider homosexuality more harmful to society than adultery, abortion, or prostitution. It's interesting how you forget those things as, as sort of social movements progress. Um, but I got the impression that a lot of people felt that harassment was just wrong. That kind of extortion was wrong. And in New York, we lived with the reality of the mafia quite a lot more than I think people in this country realize, particularly back then. Um, and anything that was going to loosen that hold, as well as police harassment, was seen as a good thing. People standing up for themselves. So you reckon there was a certain amount of sympathy for the community because of everyone was facing the same... Uh, uh, kinds of oppression, yeah. yes. And you personally, had you, did you already have an understanding of your sexuality at this point? No, I was happily straight but very much in empathy with a number of minorities, really, because I grew up within the unfolding of the civil rights movement. I was 16 when Martin Luther King was killed. 
people had a very much growing understanding. I had an analysis because of my involvement with the students against the Vietnam War. I uh, suppose I was beginning to develop a bit of a left-wing perspective, although I would never have seen it as such because left-wing was considered quite a bad thing in the States at that point. I think it's probably the um, political climate at the time and the different political movements going on. This, the riots really placed themselves amongst some similar movements for, for rights, as you say, the, um, for black minorities fighting for their rights. And it was quite, it was a heavily political time in terms of, in America at the time, in terms of, of minority groups and political awareness, I suppose. Very much so. We paid an awful lot of dues so that the younger people of today can feel the freedom to walk along holding hands. It did not start. It wasn't with just the spontaneous birth of a movement. There was a context behind it. The scene had been set over quite a number of years because there were already gay organizations that we would recognize as such. Um, back in the early 60s, even the late 50s, and there were people who were working quietly towards various demands for rights, but specifically within the law rather than as social recognition as well. And I think it's always very interesting to look at the interrelationship between when laws change and that changes attitudes or when attitudes change and that allows the law to change as well, to reflect those, those changes. So those groups, the Mattachine Society and the Daughters, Daughters of Bilitis. Mm. And they were largely working along the legal, lobbying for legal change. Yes, and doing a lot of things around um, examination of previous writings, both fiction and non-fiction, any kind of social research that there might have been, all of those sorts of things in terms of creating a body of knowledge and evidence that would form a foundation for an ideology to take forward. So you have this sort of more academic approach, if you like, and then the Stonewall rights came along and that was all action. Yes. What what is very interesting to me is that at the time I had no understanding at all of class and I was raised to believe that America is a classless society. So that, that very much hampered my ability to frame what was going on because it was very obvious that the people who were at Stonewall and who resisted on those first few nights were what we often called, we other, maybe more privileged New Yorkers, called street people. And they were people who were homeless, jobless, criminal records because they were queer, um, radical transvestites, 
because and again that was how they framed themselves at that point in time there wasn't a a concept of a transgender at that moment in time but all of those people were together in what were basically dives real dive bars nasty places that were dark and dirty and in back streets and they had watered down drinks at very high prices and of course the risk that if the parade happened that you'd be arrested and the fear of that became so bad that there was an incident not very long before the Stonewall riots in fact maybe only a few weeks before where a young Hispanic man was in such terror of having been arrested that he jumped out the window of a police station and ended up impaled on the railings. And that was something that was lighting the flames that actually blew up on that night at Stone. Marguerite McLaughlin, native New Yorker, and lifelong activist. It's now time to move across the water to Britain, Great Britain, where the impact of the Stonewall Uprising gathered momentum and the Gay Liberation Front was formed in 1970. Our next guest is Nettie Pollard. She became a member of the GLF in 1971 and has been an activist ever since. The GLF emphasized visibility in a closeted climate it was a time of sexual liberation and education, but it was also a fight for an overarching, alternative, and more liberal society that addressed all manner of social inequalities. In her capacity as gay rights officer for the National Council for Civil Liberties, Nettie's efforts were at the forefront of such campaigns, fighting for the decriminalization of homosexuality whilst protesting armaments and supporting migrants all the same. The early GLF protests were characterized by sit-ins, disruptions, and zaps, which we'll hear about shortly. But first, a lovely lesbian rally song sung by Valerie Dunn. So the prima donnas sang backing for Elton John when he performed There's Nothing Like a Dame at Stonewall. But, but. <laughs> they had their own special version, which was cleverly entitled <laughs> There's Nothing Like a Dyke. Yeah. And here's Val to sing it for us. Right. We've got Sappho and Virginia, Gertrude Stein and Audrey Lord. We're not going back in closets, come and join us one and all. We've got Axis and Doc Martens and we're more than one in ten. What ain't we got? We ain't got men. There, uh, there is nothing like a dyke. Nothing in the world. There's no fish without a bike. That is anything. So what happened is that um, I had a best friend, Jake, who was at school with me and was a friend, very close friend. And um, he was staying with me and my parents in 1971 for a few days <clears throat> and um, we saw this thing in the paper that said something about Gay Liberation Front and he said, oh, that would be interesting, let, let, let's go along and see what that's like. 
And so, so we went along and um, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. We went to this place in, in Middle Earth, in King's, King Street in Covent Garden. The Gaelic version had just moved there. And there were all these people, I mean, you know, like, you know, 100, 200 people, an awfully big, um, big group. And um, I remember Ted Brown saying, I'm, a, I'm black and I'm gay and my primary oppression is as gay. And I thought, that's really interesting. These people are really thinking. And how amazing. And then... Um, someone said, oh, you ought to meet the women, and they were all sitting on the floor, and I remember Elizabeth Wilson came up and started telling me about the women's group, and I felt a bit overcome, what, I shouldn't really be here. And, um, but it was sort of just such an amazing experience. There was all this talk of liberation and real change in society. It was so different from organisations that I later learned about, like the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, which really trying to get equality in society's terms, have, have things like gay marriage and right of equal age of consent and the right to fight in the armed forces. Um, but this was about changing society completely, about a liberation movement, joining with other liberation movements, particularly things like black power and children's liberation, and hippies, and but particularly women's liberation, because it was a, we're both oppressed by sexism. That is, homosexuals are oppressed by sexism, and so and so are women, and so that was an obvious link. Anyhow, so that day we um, we went um, back to my to my parents' place, and um, Jake said, "Can you give?" Me? He was he was in bed, and I was sort of talking to him, and he said, "Can I have?" It's um, a bit of paper and a pencil. And he wrote, I am gay on it. And it was the shock of my life. I had absolutely no idea. And he explained that he'd written to the Albany Trust and that um, they trying to make his handwriting look nice and, um, and saying, was there any pill he could take to get rid of these feelings he had? So could you explain what the Albany Trust was? Yes, it was a it was a, a counselling organisation started, I think, in the sixties, run by Anthony Gray, and it gave and it it did counselling for um, sexual minorities, not 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 just um, lesbians and gays, and so it was a fairly respectable organisation, and um, it it was sort of allowed to advertise, and I think got some money from the Home Office to run itself. Anyhow, I mean, I just, I just felt so angry that he, that he'd felt suicidal, mm. and because one, one of the Albany Trust um, advisors uh, met him, and he wouldn't meet. He, he said, no, can we meet in London?" He said, "No, my stepfather might be there." Well, can we meet in Norwich, where you're at art school? No, I might be seen. And so they met in Ipswich, mm-hmm. and um, this man said, "You know, there is nothing wrong with being gay. I think you should go out and have a gay experience." It will not make you gay, basically, was his message. Simply because uh, a person has a, uh, uh, a homosexual wish does not make him a homosexual or has a homosexual impulse or wonders what it would be like to have homosexual relations. And uh, uh, it's what we do that counts. The implication, you see, that is commonly 
tossed about that all of us contain a so-called latent homosexual component is completely untrue. So the next week we went back again together and he said, can you leave me alone for a little bit? And, um, and at that point he met Derek Jarman, who became his first boyfriend. Um, but I went on going because it was, I just, partly because I was just so, so moved and enraged by the fact that, that Drake had been meant to feel like this. And I just thought, we've got to change things. And anyhow, there's lots of things that need to be changed in society. And um, I started going to the counter-psychiatry group, particularly because I was interested in that. And um, then I went to... Uh, so what um, happened at the counter-psychiatry group? Well, that was, a, that was a great group. That was... That, um, that uh, was basically countering the idea that being lesbian or gay was a sickness. And so we had a demonstration in Harley Street, and I didn't actually go on that one. I think it was just before I, I joined, painted the road. <laughs> one. So at the time, it it was considered a, a medical, a mental issue by a lot of psychiatrists. It was yes, far fewer now. Though we still hear of conversion therapy, don't we? Even now, mm. and even in Britain, and um, so you're part of the campaign. At, to stop the medicalisation of yes, well, to, to, yes, to uh, yeah, abolish it, mm. and um, it, the eventually the Bowen Psychiatry split into two. Um, one of them wrote the um, booklet um, "Psychiatry and Homosexuality," which was Jeff Weeks, Paul Bunting. Um, oh God, I'm going to have to look up the other. Can you edit that? Um, and um, the other was to form Icebreakers, which was um, a sort of gay help service. Very definitely not counselling. Mm. But the idea was to have a telephone line um, where people could um, ring up and talk to and said These um, little stickers said, um, gay women and men can ring icebreakers on 2749590 and talk to other gay people. And so lots of isolated people and people having problems about, about their sexual orientation. We also got quite a number of transvestites and transsexuals. And, um, and we... we the organisation lasted for many years, and I, I stayed for the first, at least the first couple. Mm. And that was a place where where we, it was men and women combined, but eventually the women got fed up and left. It was about the same time I left as well. Mm. And what was that about when women... They just felt that their issues weren't being taken seriously enough, and as with everything, numerically they were less than the men. In the GLF meetings at the um, Middle Earth, Yeah. so perhaps you could uh, paint a picture of, of what they were like, what the men were doing, what the women were doing, were they meeting together, meeting separately? Yes, no, no at, at, at Middle Earth and then later on in Notting Hill Gate, um, it was one big meeting. It could be as much as 500 people. Wow. So it would be like the biggest political meeting was anywhere in the country. 
um, that there were at least five times more men than women. So being numerically smaller really didn't help. But they did, but every every week there would be two people running the meeting, chairing the meeting, and always be one man and one woman, which tended to mean that Mary McIntosh, Elizabeth Wilson, or Sarah Grimes were often the people doing it. Because I mean, I certainly wouldn't couldn't possibly have done it. Mm. I mean, I'm much too scared to speak amongst all those people. I just wrote this: the early meetings were a mixture of. Energy, creativity, thought, action, and fun. And we also used to all sort of kiss and hug one another. We called each other brothers and sisters, which might sound a bit twee these days, but it wasn't then. Mm. It was like we were family to each other. Mm. And what were some of the issues that the burning topics of the day? Well, I mean, partly there was solidarity with with other groups, like we went on anti-internment marches, things like that. Then um, some of the things that were connected with women was um, some women who had children, the men went and babysat for them. I don't think that's known very much, and I don't think it was very widespread, but that meant that they could come to the meetings rather than being mm. stu- stuck at home. Um, we also, also all went on the abortion march in 1971, which again was something which really... Yeah, only affects really it doesn't affect gay men at all really. Because it's interesting the level of uh, kind of solidarity with other groups and other people's issues at this time. So the LGBT community were awoken, if you like, in the in the wake of um, in the years following on from Stonewall. Um, um, but there's a, a wider political awareness going yes, on. Yes, I mean, absolutely. The idea was we needed to transform society. It's a bit like the people in Hong Kong now, you know, revolution in our times. They don't just want... So they don't, they're not just looking for civil rights. They're actually looking for independence from China and, you know, a completely different sort of way of relating. And I've, I've got to just... Quickly, I've got I've got a, a close friend who's actually living in Hong Kong, and he he says that sexual liberation is very much part of that agenda. Mm. You see, and that links back to GLF in America, in here, and in other countries to raise that whole question of of is that part of change in society, mm. or is or is it just tra- or is um, lesbian and gay rights just to do with trying to fit into things just as they are have a place at the top table, mm. you know, have gay politicians and gay businessmen and gay this, that and the other. Or to have a new top or table to altogether. Ha- or to have not to have a top table, mm. to have a society built on cooperation rather than competition mm. and have people having more control over their own lives. So can you cast your mind back to walking into those early meetings and... Can you articulate some of the sense of uh, excitement? Yes, well, <coughs> that's right. It was. I mean, it was just, it was exhilarating. It, it really was exhilarating. And I'd never, um, you know, I come from <coughs> a background of being a sort of totally unsuccessful heterosexual. And um, suddenly I was in something, the most exciting movement that was 
I'd also, in, in the country, I'd also been part of, for instance, a um, youth campaign for nuclear disarmament and, and one or two other groups. But they weren't exciting like this. This was, people, this was because it was about people's personal lives. It was their own liberation. It wasn't about banning the bomb somewhere else. You know, this was about how people actually actually lived and ha- what was going to happen to them. And um, it changed us all profoundly. I mean, we, we, we all say this. You know, we, we were not the same afterwards because we went through such an intense experience of, you know, of personal change and political action. So there was things like the Dr Rubin book, that's one where it was partly told you how to do abortions with coat hangers and, and um, gay men, it's talk, talked about how absolutely pathetic they were and that they spend their lives sort of doing things like putting light bulbs up on another. And um, lesbians were covered in the, in the chapter on prostitution. Ooh. And so there were a lot of objections to it. Um, oh, I remember the quote, yes, one vagina plus one vagina still equals zero. If you lose your little girl, it's because you're a dreary, inadequate, drunken old bag. Ooh. And this was a book that was actually being used by some medical students, recommended for medical students in this country. It was also a um, a very big-selling book. I remember going to a railway station and seeing it there. And we, we had a, an immense campaign about that. Um, from all sorts of different, different angles, we had a demonstration down Charing Cross Road um, with um, some of the people from Street Theatre and they stopped and did a, a, a phony abortion, dropping liver on the road. Um, and uh, we, I remember Peter Tatchell went into foils and picked up a great big stand of these books and just came and threw them into the road. And we put um, correction stickers in say, saying that this book is not, not supported by the majority of, of medical opinion and this book is poison. I remember, and then we we went round to booksellers asking them not to stock it. And I was sent, I went to the Highgate bookshop and I said this, and he said, you mean you really want me to practice censorship, do you? And I said, oh. I said, actually, may, maybe that's not the right tactic, actually. Maybe you shouldn't ask them not to sell it. Mm. Um, but the thing that we did do that I thought was great fun was sort of by John Chesterman, um, were and discussed at the action group, which was to meet every Monday, um, he designed a little flyer um, headed Pan Books, saying, you know, dear customer, um, due to the controversial nature of the book you've just bought, everything you want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask, Pan Books promised to, um, if you return this book, Pan Books promised to pay the complete remittance and postage. Mm-hmm. And then we just slipped them into books all, all over everywhere we could. And they did get some back and they were furious and they sort of felt they had to pay. I mean, I know that was completely not the way you're meant to do it, but it was such clever, so clever and it was such a dangerous book. I mean, just sort of people reading that and just being suicidal. Mm. I remember really worrying about any anyone reading it, particularly anybody. Well, you would have somebody who perhaps didn't know a great deal who'd buy a book like that, wouldn't mm. you? I mean, it wouldn't be 
you know, quite a lot of sort of teenagers and that. Mm. It was a horrible book through and through, and it's it's disgraceful. It was ever that was ever accepted for publication, really. Mm. And what other direct action did you take part in? Were you um, part of the festival of light? Well, yes, direction? that was Mary Whitehouse. Mary Whitehouse was a campaigner, mainly against pornography, um, who wanted from a Christian viewpoint, and so she formed the Festival of Light with various other people, Malcolm Muggeridge and Trevor Huddleston, um, who was a bishop that did some good work in South Africa. I'll come back to him later, and. Um, and having a sort of Christian crusade that was meant to be, that was going to have three weeks worth of action, and it started off with a um, a giant event at Central Hall, Westminster, and um, this person I was mentioning before, John Chesterman, just said, "Right, well, we're going to do something about this." So, first of all, one of the people in GLF called Janet got a got a job in their office, and she printed tickets, duplicate tickets. Infiltrated. Yeah, infiltrated, and she sent sent all the coaches to the wrong parking places, and um, then everyone who was part of the an act, the action, a particular bit of the action, was allocated a number, and um, so say you were number seven. You'd know what number six had done, but you wouldn't know what anyone else was doing. And we were told to go into the hall very discreetly. We were to dress respectably, not take any drugs with us, not take anything that might be considered an offensive weapon, and try to sit in the middle of rows, where it's harder to throw people out. And anyway, it, it, it's... It started, and first of all, there was Trevor Huddleston, who was, as I say, a bishop in who did things to do with South Africa and apartheid, and we we just absolutely let him speak, and and didn't protest in any way. And just as an aside, Michael Brown and I and an awareness group wrote to Trevor Huddleston um, about being part of the Festival of Light, and he actually came and met the awareness group. And he withdrew from the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, but so the other speakers, the other they... speakers were just appalling to like Malcolm Muggeridge, going, "I don't, I dislike homosexuals." Yeah. And this is, of course, true. That there lies the there lies the heart of the whole thing, because it is only this awareness of good and evil, of God and the devil darkness and light, all the various ways in which this has been presented, uh, that enables people to have a sense of how they should behave, what their relationships with one another should be. Praying your way out of things and stopping the sin of homosexuality or masturbation and, you know, sex should only be in marriage. And, uh, I mean, it was pretty horrible, really. And um, then just gradually people started to do something. They, so number one person would be 
what appeared to be a very respectable looking man and he suddenly jumped up and waved his arms around and went, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, and then pulled his trousers up off and found and they had a sort of hoop skirt underneath. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then there was um, Tony Salvas who was dressed as a bishop and people were coming up to him and he was just saying, no, carry on sinning. <laughs> and people, you know, people would be joining, singing, and everybody just carried on from the person before. And um, then we let out these white mice, and they went all over the hall, caused confusion. Um, and then there were about six or seven people dressed as nuns, only one of which was a woman. But would you believe they didn't notice? Not all girls are raving bloody lesbians, you know. That is a misfortune that I'm perfectly well aware of. And they were going, oh, pray for us, sisters, pray for us. <laughs> and then so their turn came and they ran to the uh, up to the front of the hall going, <laughs> and it was, it was just, it was wonderful. It was just wonderful. And, um, and we all got thrown out, of course. It was big. There were about 150 people there, so ah. that was Gay Liberation Front and Women's Liberation <clears throat> and the underground press, things like It and Oz and Friends. Um, and 150, and, um, and observers from the National Council for Civil Liberties. And nobody breathed a word. They, they genuinely, they never found out. I mean, I can't imagine that happening now, just everyone keeping their mouth shut, but they did. Nobody tipped anyone off or rang the press with a good story or anything like that. So it was a complete surprise. It was a night. complete surprise and a complete success. And um, we got generally rather favourable coverage. Then outside, we, some of us were actually trying to talk to the Christians about, about it. Um, but there was a big group of them at, and um, a policeman came up and was harassing a man, uh, one of the gay men. And so he kissed the policeman on the cheek. And the policeman tried to arrest him. And then suddenly, sort of like he was surrounded by all these people who sort of go, sure, you've got to do that. <laughs> he said, well, well, don't do it again, and it disappeared. The other side of the political um, movement around GLF and so on, was there, was there much social... Uh, oh yeah! <coughs> oh, absolutely. Yes, I mean we'd have dances and benefits and 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 private parties as well. And um, I mean, at, at the women's group um, later on, we haven't talked about the women's group yet. But the one when, when it was at the commune in Faraday Road. Um, I mean, it was sort of a bit like a party every Friday there. Mm. It's quite. It was made, it was a social thing as well as a. Mm. As a political meeting. So tell me about the women's group. The women's group, I mean, I first started going to it, I don't know, but not right at the beginning, but maybe June or something like that, I'm not quite sure. And that was met at um, Mary McIntosh's flat. Then it was uh, it was quite quite large, it might, might be about 20, 20 people there. And um, people talked and, um, and we'd planned some actions and... Um, People do things like drink drink beer sometimes. And what Mary said is it's basically sort of working class thing. And she didn't move when it moved it when it moved to Faraday Road, which was a women's commune in Notting Hill Gate. 
then the atmosphere was completely different. It was younger women mainly, not necessarily, but, but uh, mainly younger women and um, lots of dope, taking dope and cocaine and things like that. And um, people often stayed overnight because it was more of a social thing. Was it more middle class in Nottingham? I Bay? suppose it, it was in a way, yes. That was where we had the issue of of transgender coming in. As far as I know, there were no female to male trans men in um, in GLF, though there is one of the people who came to the women's group called Tony, who I think was, but I'm, I'm, I can't say that for certain. Um, but we did have um, male to female, and particularly as somebody called Rachel Pollock, who's now quite a well-known writer, and she came with what was then her wife, Edith. And um, this was somebody who was preoperative and I don't think was necessarily even on hormones, um, who looked like a man but wasn't because she was trans. And the, the issue was, should it, was it appropriate for her to be coming to the women's group or should she just go to the transvestite transsexual group? And this caused immense problems, really, because people felt very differently. Remembering that this is 1971 mm. um, and the position of women in society was quite, quite different and it was very much male-dominated and it was quite important for women to have a space of their own. In they those felt days, particularly vulnerable in those years. Yeah, I mean, I th I do think it, it it was very different. Remember, this was before women had equal pay, before we had anti discrimination, before we had rape in marriage, before we had proper legislation on on domestic violence, and lesbians would always lose custody of their children. So, and, and also, women were just considered to be inferior still I mean, then. Um, they were expected to get married and settle down. And so lesbians were going right outside the mould and they did need a space of their own. But was it appropriate or was it not appropriate? So there was a, a, you know, a lot of discussion about, about that. I mean, Rachel wasn't ever banned. But um, we then had a thinking, these are these occasions where, where we all went to a particular place and thought about particular subjects. Um, like we, we had one at the University of Leeds, we had another one, I think, in Lancaster. So this was a women's thinking. And um, Rachel came to that and we were in the hall. We were all talking and then suddenly this rather drunken man came in and went, what's that man doing here? And the women immediately said, that's not a man, it's a woman. Now get out and stop interfering. And it was that instant solidarity that you got. Mm. You know, the minute there was somebody outside, the internal conflict about whether Rachel should have come to the meeting or not disappeared completely. Mm. And, um, I mean, that was one of the things that was really impressive about GF. When one of, um, one of the woman, women in GF was accused of terrorism and being part of the Angry Brigade, the whole of GLF came out in solidarity. Didn't matter if we thought, I mean, almost all of us thought what the Bangry Bidet do was not a very good idea at all. Um, and the bombing in London, that was just completely inappropriate. But we didn't say, oh, 
you know, we, we will back her because she's innocent. We didn't, we said, we're back her because she's a sister, she's in trouble and therefore we will support her. And so we did endless things. We, we went on demonstrations and we uh, visited her in prison. We did, we did all sorts, all sorts of bits of solidarity work. Um, <clears throat> and that was something very much where the women and the men worked together. There's something about that oppression from outside yes. that pulls the community together very, very tightly. Yes. And I mean, when we, when we were on demonstrations, compared with other political groups, we all linked arms. And <clears throat> if the police tried to arrest anyone, pull, a, you know, pull one person out, it did not succeed because, because we were so together as a group, where other groups were just random individuals walking along. And I remember particularly um, after the women's group, uh, that's the one at Faraday Road. Um, I stayed the night that night, um, and um, then in the morning we decided we were going to go to Holloway Prison and do a demonstration. Because we often did things just just instantly like that, just decided to do them and off, off we'd go and do them. That's not the only occasion, they weren't all planned weeks before. Um, but there was a woman called Pauline Jones who had lost her baby um, and then she'd, she'd snatched another baby from a pram where, where, when the mother was out shopping, which was a terrible thing to do, but I mean, she certainly didn't harm it. And it was obvious because she was suffering some sort of quite serious trauma to do with having lost her own baby. Mm. And, you know, she gave... You know, she gave the baby back, but they decided that it was appropriate to send her to prison, whereas we were saying she needed help. Yeah, yeah. And so we just turned up. At, uh, not not very many of us. What about ten women, something like that? Turn, turned up at Holloway Prison, and um, we sat in the road and held up placards that we'd made that morning. And of course, then the police came, um, and they started trying to dra drag us off. And if they tried to drag one woman, all the other women held on to her. Mm. And, there, and then uh, she'd go, ah, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And the police didn't know what to do. <laughs> and, um, I mean, the traffic had stopped. And, and, it, and this went, went on for quite a long time. And, and it, um, they did actually manage to arrest two of the women in the end. Um, but those things happen sometimes. Um, but it got a lot of publicity for her case mm. which was really we thought we thought was really really worth it mm. and we did we did lots of sort of quick things called we call them sort of like zaps mm. you know rather than a planned demonstration and sometimes the spontaneous ones were the best there was another one where um my girlfriend and i were at um um at the commune in notting hill gate colville houses and um, we were talking about the fact that um, the local gay pub wouldn't serve people in drag or in, in GLF badges. And so we just spontaneously decided we were going to go there and confront them. And so my girlfriend um, rang up the... went to a phone box, no mobile phones then, 
went to a phone box and rang up LBC and one or two others and said there were... Yeah, you radio know, broadcasters. Yeah, yeah, yeah radio <laughs> broadcasters and said, there are 200 angry homosexuals sort of descending on the Champion pub. Which was completely untrue, of course. And I said, but that's not true. And she said, yes, but it'll get them there. And I thought, oh, yes, you're right, aren't you? And they did come. And so, and so we we had a big a big demonstration there where we all sat on the floor and refused to go. And then the police turned up and um, were sort of dragging us out. And um, we did that. In that case, the man, the police managed to arrest two people, but there was then a sort of like show trial at Marylebone Magistrates Court, which is that's another story. <laughs> but um, but anyhow, eventually, all the pubs did did serve people in GLF badges and drag. So, did you um, take part in the early Pride marches? Yes, um, and the one that was before the actual Pride march, which was the Age of Consent one. So tell us about that. Yes, that was the um, GLF had a youth group, which was open only to people who were under twenty-one, and people over twenty-one were not allowed to go, but you could go to one meeting. So I was twenty-one, and so I went to one meeting. I was so impressed. It was just in a in, in, in someone's private house, but there were, you know, about fifteen people there all under 21, all very well organised, um, and a number of them were girls rather than boys, and a number of them um, were under 16, which is interesting. You'd think, particularly in those days, maybe 13, 14-year-olds wouldn't be out being politically active, but they were. Um, and they, they, I mean, they brought out a, a, an issue of our magazine called Come Together, the youth, youth group issue, and um, they organised the first demonstration, which was about the age of consent. And the idea was that, you know, first of all, an equal age of consent at 16, but with the possibility of not having an age of consent at all. So uh, remind us about the difference in the ages of consent at the time. Yes, for heterosexual sex, it was um, 16 Lesbians, no age of consent, and gay gay men, twenty one. So, so you know, reasonable demand is it should at least go down to sixteen, and that's what the campaign for sexual equality was pressing for. Of course, um, that was just an amazing demonstration. We just um, on a nice sunny day, and we walked through the streets with as many police officers, I think, as there were demonstrators. But there were quite a lot of us. Um, you know, at least a couple of hundred maybe, it's difficult to remember. Um, and then we were, took over Trafalgar Square and put up microphones and people people spoke from the podium, particularly Mike, Michael Mason, who was later Gay News, and Carla from from GLF, who had, had the words lesbian written in enormous, um, enormous letters in the sort of t-shirt singlet thing that she, that she was wearing and uh, it was a joyous occasion it was it was enormous fun we were sh- and it was angry and we were shouting you know g-a-y what's that spell gay and what is gay good and what else is gay angry 
you know, sort of one, one of the slogans that we, that we were shouting from the... Mm. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, there was so much strength. Um, people were very relaxed and full of, full of energy. It's more than at any other time, I think. It was a, it, if you look at photographs of people in GLF at the time, you can see how sort of relaxed they look. Which I think is really interesting because there was so much solidarity and we, you know, we could all rely on one another. You know, if anyone was in trouble, they'd say, you know, that other people would help, for instance. So even though the rest of society could be quite hostile, yes. they've, as, as long as you were in a GLF gathering, you felt as if you were in a safe space. That's right. And I even think, if it was on a protest march yeah. in the streets. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I, d I don't think it was true for people on the gay scene generally or you know and I can't answer for lesbian scenes so I, I went to the gateways once but I did um because somebody invited me but I realized it, it, it you know I shouldn't be here they were very strictly into sort of butch femme couples and um I thought that's absolutely fine but what am I doing as a tour tourist coming and I don't think I ought to be here so the first pride march Yes, the, and this was 1972, wasn't it? Not so different from, from the youth group march, as far as I recall. It's difficult, obviously, to remember, remember details, mm. but, um, yes, we... Again, there, was a, there were a lot, of, a lot of police again, and some of them were trying to photograph people on the parade, on the, well, the march, I mean, it wasn't a parade. Um, um, we had had some leaflets that we gave out to members of the public who generally were a bit bit puzzled, but not not necessarily hostile. We didn't. I don't recall anyone being really hostile there, mm. and um, it it went off very well. And it, I mean, it's only in more recent times that it's degenerated. I would say, but we'll have to see what happens in the future because we don't know what will happen with Pride. There may be changes. It was political and. And it was also a way of people coming out some, in some ways or, you know, and just reaffirming their, their right to be who they were. I mean, I got just one little anecdote, which is I, I was telling you about icebreakers earlier. Mm. And um, we had a lot of sort of young people that used to ring, often again, you know, like 13, 14. There was a 16-year-old that, that rang saying he was a bit desperate and so... Uh, one of the male icebreakers met up with him, and then he he came to one of our smaller meetings. And the next day, he was on Pride. <laughs> you know, in the in space of about a week, he'd gone from somebody who was sort of desperate to, mm. you know, to change everything. And my friend Jake that I mentioned again, I mean, he never looked back, really. I mean, he was perfectly all right after that. Mm. Um, it was just that... Society had told him that it it was sick and it was evil, and he did you know and he didn't know anyone else gay, and in some ways I think it's even worse for lesbians because um, they were already being treated as inferior as being as women in mm. those, particularly in those days and to some extent now but I think there's been a big change. A pretty crowded curriculum allows little free time during the day and students hurry from class to class about the building. The control of breathing and development of timbre and resonance in the voice. Now, I want you to be 
stay absolutely without any expression at all and feel deadpan faces and feel that there's no movement in your body whatsoever except your tongue and your lips. And they must move with this tremendous rapidity so that we get something like this. Such a judge of boom, I can another kind of pottery from early orient without a modern helicopter, put in half a guinea, maybe in a lottery, such an opportunity may not occur again. I remember when I was at school, saying they were saying things like, "Oh, you know, you have you have to pretend to be less intelligent than the man you're going out with," and well, it may be wonderful looking, um, sort of very glamorous and pretty, but um, it's the plain ones that get the husbands. And I'm getting the impression of a such a wide range of things that the GLF did. You mentioned the publication, mm. obviously the, the meetings, the yeah. psychiatry conferences. Yeah. And then there was street theatre, which did, well, did street theatre. <laughs> I told you about the liver incident but they, and the Miss World one, but they did lots of other ones. Um, but there was a group for everything, really. It was a sort of a Jewish gay group. There was a night workers gay group. Were, uh, some of them weren't sort of overtly political. So um, the GLF grew up, sprang up here, and burned really, really brightly. Yes. And then Then it out. all went... Oh, well, I mean, I think that's a, in a way a good word for it, yes. I mean, think you can... You know, it was so intense. There was so much momentum that you can't keep that up indefinitely. Um, and so in, was it January um, 72, or the beginning of January, where, when the women left? I mean, the women were unhappy about the fact that they felt that they were often ignored. Some of the men were chauvinist. Um, and... They, they thought that they would be more effective joining with women's liberation rather than joining with gay men. And I felt completely split on that because I, I sort of thought that was true in one way. On the other hand, I thought we never, we're never going to be as strong again if it's just men on their own. It's never going to have proper balance and it's not, not really going to work. And um, so there was this big meeting we had a meeting before the women and then we were and then we went into the big meeting and and said we were going to leave and um was that a sort of block vote yeah it was a block it was a sort of block vote though um I sort of abstained in the end um but they had a, a, a sort of mass walkout and one of the men suggested we be given half the money I mean it wasn't massive money but to be given half the money which was agreed and some of the men looked really upset and then the women walked out and I sort of stayed there and I heard, and I heard one woman say, oh, that, uh, one, I'm sorry, I heard one man say, oh, good riddance. And I thought, oh, I was really surprised. So, so now we're not there. They're going, they, 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 they say that. I mean, that was only one person, but I mm. just thought, I bet he's not the only one. Um, I think the whole thing was very uncomfortable. I went a few times to Gay Women's Liberation and it, it, it somehow it, it it didn't have it just I can't the fact that I can't remember that much about it, you know it just didn't seem to have the sort of spark and the I can't, can't remember any 
big campaign to actions they did. Does that, do either of you mm. remember the, anything or read in books about what they did? Uh, certainly not the sort of, I suppose, sense of fun or, uh, in, and creativity in terms of the, some of the direct action was, was not a feature of the women's league. No, I don't think it was. However, a lot of other groups sort of um, followed on from the split of GLF. So you have um, many groups are arising from the embers, if you like. Mm. Uh, yes, well, lots of sort of like gay teachers group, mm. uh, now called Schools Out, and gay social workers and gay this, that, and the other. Yes, mm. I mean, but they, they were pressure groups mainly, but wasn't anything, weren't any very, I mean, there were ones to do with your work or, um, you know, there was the gay groups within political parties. Mm. But it's not really anything like GLF. I mean, it was it was how it had to move on. And it had gay switchboard came out of GLF, for instance, mm. and that was a very valuable service and still is. Mm. In recent times... Yes. GLF has rekindled. Yes, and that is really amazing. We had a, the first meeting was in November 2018 back at LSE where we came from and there were actually over 50 people there. So it was a wonderful mixture of original GLFers and um, quite a few non-binary and trans younger people and... Um, and so, and other other young people, and then a few middle-aged people who were nothing to do with GLF, and um, yes, and it was it was really exciting, and we've, you know, we're hoping to have a revolutionary convention this year. Wow. Um, which I think is now going to be at the Bishopsgate Institute, but to have, you know, high-profile speaker, and also to have. Uh, sort of workshops and poetry and, and all sorts of things sort of along the lines of GLF and about um, solidarity with other struggles, particularly in this case, um, the black struggle, because um, Aubrey and Walter, who were people that started GLF, went to Revolutionary Convention of the Black Panthers in 1970, and that was really where they got the idea of GLF. Because that, you know, in those days there were so many other civil rights movements, effectively, that kind of fed into the development, I suppose, mm. in the early days. Yes, yes. Um, and then we've also we've we've done fun things, and we've done solidarity with the um, Stansted Fifteen, for instance. GLF was quite prominent in that, and went um, and spoke at their rally, and. And if you'd uh, tell us some more about the Stansted 15. Stansted 15, uh, 15 youngish people who um, went to a um, to the Stansted airport where um, a plane load of immigrants were going to be deported, asylum seekers, mainly to Nigeria. And um, they simply glued themselves to the plane and made it impossible for the plane to take off and they stayed there for 
hours and hours and hours. Mm. And um, so they couldn't take off. And quite a reasonable proportion of the people who were going to be deported now have the right to stay or are still involved in legal processes because what the government's done is to um, deport deport people before their appeals. Mm. It is absolutely appalling. And actually there's um, someone who, who's on the executive of the Campaign for Homosexual Equality who is at this moment languishing in, in Nigeria. Um, he made an appeal. He... He went, took his case for asylum. They turned it down. He appealed, and they sent the papers to the wrong address. And the next thing they knew, he'd been arrested. He was in a detention centre. We tried to visit him, and they just said, "Oh, he was deported yesterday, a few months ago, on the anniversary of the um, youth group demonstration." Um, we took over Trafalgar Square again without permission, you know, and just climbed up and um, put up put banners out um, about lesbians and about gay revolution and gay liberation front and um, then and I mean that was quite fun we actually got quite a lot of pe people there it was about 30 which is quite good because it was daytime so people who were working or, stu or students it wasn't all that easy for them to get there um, and so that was again it was pe the older people the people the original people were there and, and the younger people there and, and everyone else who supported was there. And so eventually an official came and, and turfed us off, as you would expect. <laughs> um, but we were up there for about half an hour and then, and then we took over another part of the square with microphones and music and, and all made speeches, read out the GLF demands, uh, the original demands right back from 1970. And I just think it's amazing how many people, I mean, it's a long time, 50 years, you know, how many of the original people are still around. And as the stories continue, that is what we might just discover. Thank you to Marguerite McLaughlin and Nettie Pollard for sharing their stories and insights. In the next episode, we will be talking with Lisa Power, co-founder of Stonewall and Pink Paper former policy director of the Terence Higgins Trust, and former secretary general of the International Lesbian and Gay Association. This podcast was made possible through the generous support of National Lottery Heritage Fund and Opening Doors London. These interviews can be listened to in their entirety at the Bishopsgate Institute Archive in Liverpool Street, London, and you can find links, show notes, and a bibliography for further reading on the project website, www dot w2r dot org dot uk